I've got my snacks with me. We are in First Peter. Um, First Peter chapter 3. The title of this message is On the Right Side of, of History. Last week we were talking about the journey that we're on and that we are to live with our hearts prepared. Uh, we are to live without fear of those around us. We are to fear God alone and always be prepared to give an answer. Should someone ask for the reason for the hope in us? So I pray that the Lord gave you opportunities to share the reason for the hope in you this week. I pray that you shared that with faith and with courage, boldness, and that uh, yeah, you had the joy of seeing people respond to the good news of the gospel. One of the things I've been doing over the last few weeks is uh, just asking all of the different ministry areas at Willingdon how many people have made first-time decisions, first-time commitments to Jesus in your ministry area over the last three to four months. And we're still tallying up the number, but it's at least 165 students and adults have declared or confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord. So that's something to celebrate, right? That God is at work among us. And uh, I say that so that you will pray for these people that have surrendered their lives to Jesus and so that you will be encouraged to share the reason for the hope in you. Today, uh, the message is a wonderful uh, uh, it's based on a wonderful passage. Our, our text is encouraging for disciples of Jesus. It's a call to live within the reality of Jesus' victory, but it's one of the most difficult texts in Scripture to interpret. Martin Luther said this about this passage. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. So, are you up for the challenge? Let's go for it. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to them. So as soon as you read that text, a series of questions come to mind. For example, where was Jesus when he proclaimed to the spirits in prison? What does the flood in the Old Testament have to do with our baptism? Why does Peter insert the story of Noah right here? Does baptism actually save us? Well, we'll try to answer those questions in a few more. It's snack time. I need to eat something here. <laughs> so this is a Rubik's Cube, and um, it's one of the most popular games in the world. 
kind of fun to play with it. If it's been really scrambled, it takes quite a while to solve the puzzle. Now, the world record is held by a South Korean. He did it in 4.59 seconds. That is fast. So, one, two, three, four. It's done. Um, could you time me, Paulo? Okay, start now. Done. How many seconds? Two, three? Yeah, world record right here. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, no, it's really hard. If it's scrambled, it takes a while. But I put that there just to encourage you to engage in the challenge. Um, this is a difficult text. Just try to understand the text with the help of the Holy Spirit as we walk through it. Make the effort. It's worth it. One commentator has uh, said that there are about 180 different nuances, different variables in this text. So 180. If I preach for 30 minutes, I promise to not go more than 30 minutes. If I preach for 30 minutes, then that's about six variables a yeah, six variables a minute, uh, one variable every 10 seconds. That is impossible to, to cover. So we need to exercise wisdom. Exercise wisdom. We'll focus on the big things in the text. In life, life is complex. And so we need to focus on the big things. Make sure that we have the big things in order. Love for God, love for people, love for the word. That's a wise way to live. And if we have the big things in place, then the rest of life makes a lot more sense. So the big things in this passage, the main point, Jesus Christ has triumphed over all demonic powers. That's the main point. Jesus Christ has triumphed over all demonic powers. And there are four key subpoints. One, Jesus suffered and died for sinners to bring people to God. These are in the outline uh, in the leaflet that you received coming in. Second point, Jesus, following his resurrection, proclaimed the definitive defeat of demonic powers. Third point, Jesus' disciples are saved by identifying with his death and resurrection. And a fourth point, Jesus, now exalted, has subjected all demonic powers to himself. We'll explore what that means for us as disciples of Jesus as we go through the message. So this passage is about Jesus accomplishing something for us. We're being called to live within the reality of his victory. As people living in the Western world, we may have to go through a bit of a worldview shift, a go through a shift in the way we see the world in order to actually embrace it and appreciate what Jesus has accomplished. Why do I say that? Well, in our Western, scientific, modern world, we have practically removed angels and demons from our day-to-day -day life. Very few people in the Western world wake up in the morning conscious of the presence of a spiritual realm where angels and demons actually exist and act. Scripture, however, the Bible, clearly teaches that there is a spiritual realm where angels and demons do exist and do act. Jesus, like no other, calls out and confronts the demonic. 
So if in our worldview we do not have a spiritual realm where angels and demons exist, Jesus would say to us, hey, your worldview, your way of seeing things, inadequate. You don't see some things that are very real in your life. One other problem we face in the Western world is that we're often influenced by Hollywood and pop culture. And so this worldview is pervasive in the movie industry. They're good, evil, these are equal competing forces. You never know who's going to win. We as human beings are pawns in the hands of good and evil forces. We're subject to their influence. And we're not sure who is going to win the battle. If we have that worldview, we're living within a worldview which could not be further from biblical truth. And so that's why we need to return to the scriptures and understand what God has done in Jesus. Again, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is a key statement. Christ suffered and died once for all. He suffered and died once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus died a vicarious death on behalf of sinners. Peter writes to his disciples in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Paul says something very similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The death of Jesus was sufficient once for all because he was sinless. We read in verse 18, the last part of the verse, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. There's a contrast there between Jesus' death and his resurrection. In the earthly human physical realm, Jesus died. He died physically. By the Spirit, he was resurrected. He now lives resurrected and glorified. What was the purpose of Jesus' death and resurrection? Why did he die? Well, again, in verse 18, that he might bring us to God. Bring us to, it means lead to, provide access to. So Christ's death was a unique once-for-all sin offering, a unique once-for-all sacrifice that we might be made alive in the Spirit, born to a living hope, as Peter writes, that we might actually be victorious over sin and death, receiving the gift of forgiveness, the gift of eternal life. We are not to live this life defeated. Satan would have us think that. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He, Jesus, committed no sin. Neither was the seat found in his mouth. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So Christ was a, a unique once-for-all sin offering, a unique once-for-all sacrifice so that we might live to 
righteousness. Experience his victory. We don't live this life trying to earn our salvation, trying to do enough good so that we might be accepted by Jesus in the end. We also don't go through life whipping ourselves, flagellating ourselves for our sin and just laying there mired in our sin. We repent for it and we turn to Jesus that we might live to righteousness. So, first point in your outline. Jesus suffered and died for sinners to bring people to God. So as disciples of Jesus, we might have access to God, that we might be reconciled with God, be at peace with him. We are to live at peace with God now as followers of Jesus. We are children of God, loved by our Father. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes, for he himself, he's referring to Jesus, is our peace. In verse 18 of that same chapter, for through him, through Jesus, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. This is the way of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone. Let's move on to verse 19. Just rereading the last part of verse 18. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. This is where it gets interesting. There are three major interpretations of verse 19, and we'll walk through them quickly. The first interpretation suggests that this verse, verse 19, refers to Jesus descending to the place of the dead to speak to the souls of those who died in the flood. Jesus, according to this interpretation, did this between his death and resurrection. The proclamation that he made was either one of condemnation or he was offering these people a second chance for salvation. Several problems with this interpretation. One, the verse doesn't mention a descent. It says that he went. Two, verse 18 has already spoken of Jesus' resurrection, so it would seem odd that in verse 19, Peter would return to a time between Jesus' death and resurrection. Third, this interpretation is in direct contradiction with Peter's theology and with the rest of Scripture. For example, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment... So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, because he already has, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So just a parenthesis here. Some who call themselves Christians, they believe or they live as if there are three categories in life. There are the committed, radical disciples of Jesus. There are those that do not believe in Jesus. And in between, there are the on-the-fence Christians. Who are the on-the-fence Christians? Well, they are those who are not fully committed to Jesus, but somehow believe that after they die, when they get to heaven or to the gates of heaven, God will be gracious and for some reason will allow them to enter into eternity with God. They believe that in this life there's actually a fence that you can sit on. 
a kind of neutral spiritual space. Some would even say, well, that's the, the reasonable place to live that's, or to abide. That's the, that's the rational way to live a life. Those that are totally committed to Jesus are just too fanatical. Well, did Jesus in the scriptures ever say, come to me and sit on a fence? Doesn't that sound kind of odd? What does Jesus actually invite us to? He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's Mark 8, verse 34. From God's perspective, there is no fence to sit on. There's no neutral spiritual space where you attend church every now and then, but you also go to psychics, you also go to sweat lodges, you read your horoscope, you kind of negotiate the spiritual realm. In scripture, you're either in the kingdom or you are not. And your spiritual enemy, Satan, he actually is prowling, looking for someone to devour. John 10.10, the intent of the enemy is always to steal and kill and destroy. So you don't play in life with both sides. Scripture never encourages us to live this life as if there's a second chance. The New Testament always exhorts us to persevere, to endure, to be faithful, because a person dies once. And when Christ returns, it'll be to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, not to give a second chance to those who straddle a fence. The call is to live this life in light of eternity. That fills every moment of life with value. So the first interpretation that Jesus went to hell, descended to hell, and preached to human souls between his death and resurrection, we reject. There's a second view that Jesus, in verse 19, is preaching to the people of Noah's day through the prophet Noah. In this view, spirits are understood to be the sinful generation of Noah's day. Christ in the spirit proclaims the gospel through the prophet Noah. The unbelievers who hear the message do not believe. They are now suffering judgment. They are the spirits in prison. Well, again, we reject this view because, first of all, the word spirits on its own is never refer, used to refer to human souls after death. Also, in First Peter, the time of Jesus' preaching is after his resurrection, not prior to his coming to earth. Jesus did not preach to people thousands of years before he came to this earth. Thankfully, there's a third interpretation, more in line with the flow of these verses, with Peter's theology, and the rest of Scripture. Point two in your outline. Jesus, after his resurrection, proclaimed the definitive defeat of demonic powers. So as disciples of Jesus, we are encouraged to proclaim his victory fearlessly. At the time when Christ was made alive, when he was resurrected, he went and preached to the spirits. Without exception, in the New Testament, that word spirits is used for supernatural beings. Jesus preached to evil, fallen angels who were cast into hell, awaiting final judgment. The word prison is not used elsewhere in Scripture as a place of punishment after death for human beings. It is only used for Satan, Revelation 20, verse 7. He is in prison. 
Scripture also speaks of fallen angels being imprisoned. For example, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, so there, the Scriptures are referring to a place of confinement for evil fallen angels. The message in 1 Peter 3 is that Jesus proclaimed by the Spirit his victory over evil, over evil powers. And it was through his death and resurrection. He proclaimed this victory to evil fallen angels who were restrained by God awaiting final judgment. Back to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Are you still with me? We're solving the puzzle. Why does Peter refer to the story of Noah here? I think this is really fascinating. Noah was the most prominently known biblical figure in Asia Minor, even among the non-Jewish population. There are oracles that were written in the first century in Asia Minor, the Sibylline Oracles, and they refer to Noah as a preacher of righteousness, a preacher of repentance. There are also uh, Roman coins which give testimony to Noah's enduring legacy. During the second and third centuries... Coins were minted with Noah and his wife on one side and the Roman emperor on the other side. That was during the reigns of five successive emperors. In addition to the biblical flood story, Genesis 6 through 9, there were four uh, flood accounts in Asia Minor. Not only that, Noah's ark had allegedly settled on a mountain in Asia Minor. All of that to say that Peter draws on the story of Noah because it is so alive in the minds of his readers, both Jews and Gentiles. And the flood illustrates Christ's victory. According to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, just prior to the flood story, fallen angels had sexual relations with women, and they were imprisoned because of their sin. They transgressed the boundaries established by God. Jude, Jude verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So for the readers of First Peter, those first readers in the first century, the event described in the flood story, beginning of Uh, Genesis chapter 6 that represented the climax of sin that event it justified the extermination of all humanity so Noah for them represents the climax of sin in human history unimaginable perversion a time of tremendous rebellion and during that time God's patience waited verse 20 that's a remarkable statement Another translation is that God eagerly waited with expectancy. So God, the righteous one, the holy and just one, the one who had right and reason to judge, he waited 
patiently, even though the people were rebellious in Noah's day. This is given to encourage the disciples in the first century. The same is true in their world, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the reference to Noah and God's patience is meant to encourage these disciples. Look at the comparison that's being made. First, Noah and his family, the text refers to eight people. So Noah, his wife, their three sons, their three wives. Noah and his family, like them, the disciples are a small, embattled minority in a hostile world. Secondly, Noah and his family proclaimed a message of hope while they were being mocked and ridiculed by what they said, the way that they lived. Peter and his disciples are to fear God and give the reason for the hope within them as they are being slandered and falsely accused. Third, in Noah's day, God waited patiently. Again, in the first century, God is waiting patiently for people to repent. Fourth, when Jesus was resurrected by the Holy Spirit, he proclaimed victory over evil spiritual forces. In the first century, the disciples of Christ experience the onslaught of the demonic, and the good news is that Jesus has triumphed over all demonic forces, including those at work in the Greco-Roman world. Fifth, when judgment came at the time of Noah, Noah and his family were saved from judgment. When Jesus returns, the disciples in these churches that received this letter, they will be saved from judgment. They will be vindicated as Jesus was. And so will we. Why? Verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism now saves you. Now, does this teach that when a person gets baptized, they're spiritually reborn? Is there something magical about the water? Peter says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. It could be translated, not as the removal of the filth of the flesh. Meaning, washing the body with water does not magically cleanse anyone of moral filth. Baptism is not a holy bath that cleanses us. It's not a ticket to heaven. It's not a pass into eternity. I remember baptizing a young man on a very cold day. And so he went down into the water, and as he came up out of the water, he literally swore. So I put him back under the water. I just held him there. And as I did, all of his moral filth just floated away. Pulled him out of the water after a few minutes. He didn't say a word. No. What's happening in verse 21? Well, there's a comparison that's drawn between salvation in Noah's day and the baptism of Jesus' disciples. The water that flooded the ancient world was an ancient agent of death. Those that enter the, the waters of baptism, they are dying to self. 
when they come up out of the water, they're being resurrected to new life. That's what's being symbolized. Baptism saves only insofar as it's rooted in verse 18, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen to Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So baptism is an outward symbol of our internal rebirth. We were made alive by the Spirit when we confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord. Regeneration is a work of the Spirit. We receive it by grace through faith in Jesus. So point three in your outline. Jesus' disciples are saved by identifying with his death and resurrection. So as disciples of Jesus, we live dead to self and alive to the Spirit. Dead to self and alive to the Spirit. Baptism is given further meaning in that clause there as an appeal to God for a good conscience. The word appeal can mean pledge. And so baptism is a pledge to God to live a life devoted to Jesus, committed to him, to live for his glory. Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What Paul is saying there is that if you get baptized, you are identifying with Christ, literally putting on the clothing of Christ, putting on the jersey of Christ, as it were. If you're a sports fan, you identify with your team, right? You identify with the victories of your team, you cry when your team loses, This week, I have been wearing my Minnesota Vikings hat. Um, Minnesota Vikings, it's an American football team. And last Sunday was really important. If, if you haven't been paying attention, the most important event in sports history happened last Sunday. The Minneapolis miracle. What happened? Well, Case Keenum the quarterback of the Vikings. Okay, it's the last play of the game. Last play. He's the quarterback. He calls the seven heaven play. He goes back to pass. I'm tempted to throw it. No, I won't. So he throws the ball about 25, 30 yards. Stefan Diggs, the receiver, catches the ball near the sideline. The defender misses him. Diggs manages... Just imagine how exciting this was. He, Diggs manages to stay on his feet and runs into the end zone with the clock ticking down. Touchdown. The Vikings win the game. The whole stadium goes crazy. The commentators are saying, unbelievable, unbelievable. Main point of the message, cheer for the Vikings today. I've been a Vikings fan since I was about 10. Doesn't make a lot of sense, but I have been. I've been loyal. And so I wear the hat. It's a fun week to identify with the Minnesota Vikings. But if I'm a Christian, then this thing that I enjoy, cheering for the Minnesota Vikings, it can never take the place of Jesus in my life. It can never become my primary passion. 
And it's so easy to replace Jesus with things like a sports team, a vacation spot, a video game, you know, my job, my title, whatever we carry, right? It's so easy for other things to become more important than Jesus. The Minneapolis miracle, that was fun to watch, but definitely not the great miraculous event that we should orient our lives by. Even Case Keenum, this was really interesting. Case Keenum, the quarterback that threw that pass, a reporter came up to him after the game and said, this must be the best day in your life. And he said, actually not. Best day in my life? The day I received Jesus as my savior. Second best, yeah. Second best day in my life? The day I got married. Maybe this is the third best day in my life. (laughs) The miracle that changed absolutely everything, and if you're a disciple of Jesus, it has changed your life. It's the most important event in all of history is the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. That is the miracle that we focus our lives on. A disciple of Jesus declares his passion for Jesus. He or she is a new creation in Christ, born to a living hope, identified with his death and resurrection, and willing to face suspicion, hostility, slander, because, verse 22 we read, who, Jesus, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus died, rose again, ascended, and now sits at the right hand of God, reigning over all things, reigning over all angels, authorities, and powers. Jesus reigns over all angelic powers, good and evil. All things have been subjected to him. He is Lord and Christ. He has triumphed. His death, resurrection, and ascension have dealt with evil, with the evil of fallen angels throughout history. So, point four in your outline. Jesus, now exalted, has subjected all demonic powers to himself. So as disciples of Jesus, we joyfully live in the reality of his ascension. Christ is victorious. There is no reason for a disciple of Jesus to live in fear. To live in fear of other people or to live in fear of spiritual powers. We participate in the victory of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. We are on the right side of history. We sit with Jesus in the heavenly places. That's the gospel. That's why Peter can write in chapter 3 verse 14, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. He also writes in chapter 5, and this is an amazing passage, chapter 5, verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, and that is literally all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 
And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So because Jesus was vindicated and conquered sin and death, one, way, one day we will be vindicated. We will live with Jesus in holiness forever. Nothing that comes against us in this life is beyond the control of the risen and living Christ. So we have no fear of them. We fear God alone. Jesus reigns over all things. History is in his hands and his hands alone. In Jesus, we have authority over the evil one in this life. We walk in the power of his resurrection and the authority of his ascension. Even in the midst of difficult circumstances, we know that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Amen? Amen. May we live in the knowledge and victory of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. Let's stand to pray. And I'm going to uh, pray in the first person. I invite you to pray with me. I will pray as a son of the Father. If you are a daughter, pray as a daughter. Lord, you chose me from before the foundation of the world. Chose me to be your son. You drew me to yourself by your spirit. And it's by your grace that I am standing here today praying. I confess that other passions sometimes occupy a central place in my life. Sometimes it's another person. Sometimes it's my job or my title. Sometimes it's even just a sports team or a video game. Lord, I choose to put away my idols and in my heart honor you as Lord. You are the Lord God Almighty, the, Almighty, the beginning and the end, the way, the truth, the life. You are my Savior, my Shepherd, my Lord, my provider, my friend. Forgive me for being double-minded. Rid me of a spirit of compromise, Lord. May I find joy in you alone. May, I, may you be the only one I go to for life. May you be my first love. May you be the primary passion of my heart. I ask for the purifying work of your spirit. Renew my mind. Transform my heart passions. By your spirit, align my heart, Jesus, with the truth of your gospel. Your grace calls me to a life of following you. May I follow you for your glory, for the furtherance of your kingdom. Jesus, you died and rose again. You triumphed over the evil one. You sit at the right hand of the Father, reigning. Yours is the dominion now and forever. Jesus, may I live within the reality of your victory. May your will be done in my life. It's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Go with God.